to the Bards FM podcast special edition with part two of the interview with retired Sergeant Major Joe Vega, Somalia veteran. This war is real. Fighting is everything. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Tempt not the righteous man to draw his sword. Conviction, righteousness, ruthlessness. To understand tolerance, you have to understand the line of intolerance. War is the teacher, soldiers are the students. They become the bards of war. Well, good evening, patriots, and it's Friday. January 27th in the year 2023. If you're on the East Coast, you've already slipped quietly into Saturday, which is going to be a nice way to relax and hopefully have a great weekend. We're going to continue with part two of the interview tonight with with retired Sergeant Major Joe Vega. He's a soft D, Special Operations Force Delta operator, also known as the unit. Uh, They have their motto, by the way, is Cine Paris which is without equal. And I think that sums up a lot of who they are. They're a a very accomplished, very humble, and very stealth group that um, we seldom ever get a chance to hear much about. The heroics that they've pulled off and they've accomplished in their time are unmatched. In the first part of this tonight, earlier today in part, or earlier this evening in part one, we heard of Joe's experience a little bit of overview of his life and also his experience in Somalia. And you kind of give you some insight and details into that fight and how that occurred. And then as well, his discussions on Pablo Escobar and his operations in Colombia. In this part two, we're going to get into a few other things he's done like El Chapo, some work that he's done in subterranean work as well as just some general perspectives on soldiering and the things that he continues to do with soldiers and his perspectives on the mission overall. He is a soldier soldier and uh, an amazing friend and brother and one a person that has given unbelievable amounts to this nation. Before we get started, make sure you're taking good care of your wealth. We know what's coming. We know that they're doing everything they can to destabilize this economy, and as part of destabilizing the economy, they're looking at a, a wealth shift. Any opportunity they can to take more from you is the goal. It's highly recommended that you move is consider moving your 401ks and other IRAs into a solid asset, and that's why we have Birch Gold. Are the Biden administration's New Year's goals of tax and spend and turned a blind eye to inflation at odds with your goals of securing your savings? When you finally had enough of the games government is playing with your savings in retirement, diversify into gold with Birch Gold. I am tired of my money being impacted by stupid decisions by leaders in Washington. For over 5,000 years, gold has withstood inflation, geopolitical turmoil, and stock market crashes. And here's the great news. You can still get it. In fact, you can own gold and silver in a tax-sheltered retirement account. Birch Gold makes it easy to convert an IRA or 401k into an IRA in precious metals. Here's what you need to do. Text the word BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898 to claim your free info kit on gold. With almost 20 years experience converting IRAs and 401ks into precious metals IRAs, Birch Gold can help you. Protect yourself with gold today by texting BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to the number 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews. Secure your future with gold. Start today with a free info kit. There is zero obligation to make this request. Just text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898. Birch Gold. Again, text BARDS, B-A-R-D-S, to 989898. This is the best way to start the new year. So text BARDS to 989898 for your free info kit. You will not be disappointed. We're in a crazy period of life in this country and in this world. We're dealing with what some are even calling now polycrisis. 
really all of this is an extension of the fifth dimension of warfare, fifth generation of warfare, which is in unidentifiable forms of warfare coming at us at various speeds and always an asymmetric fight towards us. That type of warfare leverages all sorts of informational sources. It's constantly getting in our head. It's trying to affect us in our daily lives. We have cost of living increases. We have natural disasters. You've got the, the hype about this climate change nonsense. You have resource restrictions. You have corporate restrictions. Everything is driven towards trying to control and destabilize a country. Right now, the United States is the focal point, as well as Europe, but primarily the United States is a focal point of a warfare intended to cripple the country permanently so that it can never recover. One of the main initiators of this conflict was the bioweapon, also known as the VAX. They used the front of the fake COVID crisis. They had treatment protocols that instead of using the things that we've now learned and were available, HCQ, ivermectin, other things like that to use to treat people. They relied on protocols that were destined to kill people, which they did. We've seen the advent of poor treatment and intentional mistreatment, especially with the elderly. We've seen the misreporting of deaths, all of this to create a a psychosis of fear within the nation and ultimately drive a nation to a point of being crippled by itself, by its own free will. As we go ahead in this way, we're noticing already, as I went over some of the numbers yesterday, the mass increases in soldiers that are now out of the ranks. And those were focusing primarily on aviators, special operators, and generals. And in review of those numbers yesterday, I, my per- the percentages I was giving you, which I'm going to touch on again next week, but I was actually very much off on my percentages. I was using numbers in the range of 100 and 140%. In fact, the actual increases when I, I just did a, a, an error on a decimal, it's 1,000% and 1,400% increases across the board in these instances of soldiers being crippled by what would looks to be primarily the VAX. That's a 20% loss on our key and critical soldiers and train and pilots and aviators across all services. All of this is coming down to a simple focus that it's going to require all of us as people to hold the line and ultimately restore this nation. Our government is broken. Our military is corrupt in its leadership. We have good soldiers in the ranks but sadly, we've been infiltrated from within. And the globalist agenda, the love for Europe, this Europhile nonsense, all of this has gotten us in trouble to where we are. We've had wretched influence that has come into our officer ranks from the likes of places like the CFR. And the constant idea of the allowing a billionaire class and an elite class to not only leverage our government through lobbying through money buyouts, leverage, the corruption in Wall Street, the list goes on. And we, the people, as we sit out here, are supposed to be obedient to the directions that they take this nation, even though those directions are taking us off the cliff. When we hear stories like we're going to hear the second part tonight of veterans and soldiers like Joe Vega, we're reminded of the real core and spirit of what it is to be a patriot. This is a man who spent his entire life, once he committed to the military in the late 80s, he's committed the rest of his life to training soldiers and operations to support this country. Not operations in, in the intent of supporting corporate America, but always in the right intent to give everything he can to the protection and defense of the people of this nation. That attitude of a sacrificing yourself for the greater cause and to do whatever it takes to be relentless and never settle for anything less than victory, that's the fire that we have to continue to kindle and rekindle to build up again in the American patriot.
we've come a long ways as a, as a nation, actually, in the last five, seven years. A reawakening in our love in Jesus, the reconnection of our foundation in faith, a re-understanding and a deeper understanding and education into our founder's intent. And as we look back at the strength of where so much of that came from, it came from the pulpit. Well, today, those pulpits have been weakened. They don't speak to the power of what they did to the patriots before. But what we do have are powerful voices out here, like people like Joe Vega, that speak the truth in the heart of a warrior. And these are people that ultimately, their impact, I truly believe, will make a difference in the months and years ahead, especially for those that need to stand and for the legacy of those that need to remember what it is to be a warrior in this nation. So Patriots, with that, we're going to pick up where we left off, Joe reminding us that of the security he had, measures he had to take with his family when his name was revealed after the Escobar mission in Colombia, and then we'll take it from there. So here we go. Part two of the interview with Sergeant Major retired Joe Vega. Some of us were on the cartel's hit list, uh, or at least we were told. Uh, so, uh, so I had to make sure my family knew that, uh, especially my brother, I have a twin brother, I made sure that he knew that they'd probably come after him. They'd probably come at him first since he was a little bit more visible than I was. You have done a tremendous amount of work in the cross-border area and drug trafficking. One of those names that most current that people are probably very familiar with is El Chapo. Oh, yes, El Chapo. He's, uh, so El Chapo was actually uh, in the 70s uh, when the DEA was created. Uh, they had no success for about the first three years. President Nixon said, hey, I created you guys, I funded you guys, if you don't show me success, I'm going to disband you guys. So they did what was called Operation uh, Triangle uh, in the in Sinaloa, Chihuahua, and Durango. It was uh, really destroying all the crops uh, that, that were found within those areas. And really what ended up happening was they destroyed a lot of regular farmers' crops, legitimate crops, and uh, really the, the, the single highest number of mass exodus uh, from, uh, from the Sinaloa, uh, Durango, and Chihuahua into uh, to Mexico City. Uh, mass exodus of personnel, and especially children and uh, families of children. Uh, so there was this gentleman called Miguel Angel Feliz Gallardo, who was from Sinaloa, and he decided, you know, what can I do for these people? And he was, he worked, he was uh, actually uh, worked in security for, for the government, for the president. So he decided, well, I'll bring crops that uh, these guys can grow and we'll build back the economy. He was considered the first godfather of the Mexican cartels, and he controlled every, everything. Uh, after the death of Kike Camarena, uh, they kind of said that it was uh, Miguel Ángel Gallardo who set that up. So now the U.S. had a reason to go after him. Uh, uh, so they set up uh, really an ambush, uh, invited him to dinner in, uh, in the politician's house, and they, they, they arrested him when he was there. Uh, that left, uh, obviously, that left that operation open, and every... Uh, different state in Mexico have what they call a plaza. A plaza is where they, where they uh, uh, kind of a, a gateway into the U.S. So the, let's say if you were from Sinaloa, but you're going to cross uh, in El Paso, now the, the, the cartel from Chihuahua or from El Paso, Juarez, the Juarez cartel, was charging and so on. And then Sinaloa was charged. And so I say, you want to use my plaza, you have to pay money. That's what really separated the cartels into different cartels from Sinaloa, Juarez, uh, Matamoros, uh, the Gulf. Uh, uh, so they, they just separated and uh, they became uh, vicious rivals. Uh, so El Chapo used to be the logistic guy for the Sinaloa cartel and for Miguel Angel Gallardo. He was the only individual that could guarantee a shipment within 24 hours that it would and that you would receive it. Uh, so uh, so uh, once the cartels divided, he took over the Sinaloa cartel. And he was probably the most successful cartel out of them all. 
for years, we went into Mexico, and it was the same thing. Go after the heads, and the body will, will fall. But it didn't happen. Uh, and that really just escalated the violence. Uh, after, uh, after President Fox, the next president after Fox, and Fox had a very good relationship with the U.S. and was, it was President Bush. The guy after him said, look, we're not making any sense going after heads of the cartels. I will not go after the heads no more. We're going to go after the, the bottom guys. And uh, naturally still. Uh, so they, after years, they had a referendum. The violence did not go away. It still kept on. And we could go into why that happened. And it's, uh, it's uh, kind of long. Uh, but, uh, but they had a referendum or a plebiscite in the country, asking if we could go back to the days of one godfather. They call it the days of the gentleman. Uh, who will you pick? And by far, everybody said uh, El Chapo and the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, they were considered gentlemen. Would they kill you? Yes, they would kill you. Uh, but they, you know, they just put you on your knees and shoot you in the back of the head, and you're dead. Where Los Zetas would kill you, take your clothes off, cut off your members, put in your your mouth, hang you in public. So they said, no, you know, Los Zetas and Matamoros and those guys, when they kill you, they embarrass you and your family and they go after your family. Uh, but, you know, or they're, they only kill you. They're gentlemen. <laughs> I know, what a way of thinking. But uh, so everybody said, El Chapo should run it all. And, um, and that's what they were trying to do, just get it back to one, one single godfather in control of everybody. So it would stop the charging of the plazas and would charge, it would stop the violence against each other. Mexico, oh, Mexico uh, needs the support of the U.S. with training, uh, equipment, and obviously money to continue their campaign against the cartels. But in order to get that money, they have to show good faith and they have to give something in return. Uh, the U.S. wanted El Chapo. So... Mexico said, we will give you El Chapo. Now, El Chapo has had 21 doubles. Every time he left, he left. There was three different motorcades, just like you see in the movies, three different motorcades. They go in three different directions. Uh, three vehicles, uh, a dozen motorcycles. Uh, and you're going to tell me that El Chapo was caught without any security in a hotel, uh, we're getting ready to conduct an interview with a Mexican... Uh, uh, Ten Novela star and Sean Penn. Uh, Farfetch. Uh, it's, it's, it's just not something that seems plausible. It's not possible. Uh, in, uh, since then, I have been to, uh, to Sinaloa, and uh, everybody there will tell you that uh, uh, the person that was turning to the U.S. was one of the doubles. I would have said, uh, yeah, it's possible. It could happen, but where's the proof? Uh, but I will say that during some of our AWG days, when we were traveling to Guatemala, at the very far end of a Guatemalan airfield uh, or Air Force base, there's this big, huge mansion, which everyone says belongs to a Mexican cartel leader known as El Chapo. Uh, I wouldn't have believed it, but everybody says it so. I know that, again, just my beliefs, my understanding. Uh, there's no way El Chapo would have been caught by himself. Uh, the people there all seem to believe it was a double. Uh, when he went to, uh, when he was in New York, he was uh, in Manhattan in the, in the Federal Marshals Building. They kept changing him from uh, cell to cell. They said it was to prevent anybody from really seeing him or the press from knowing where he was and uh, to safeguard his life. Uh, some people will tell you it's because they didn't want anybody to see him because they would have known it was, uh, it was a double. If you look at the pictures of him before and you look at the pictures of the guy that was turned in, there's a comparable difference. Everybody, everyone says, well, he had a lot of plastic surgery. He really tried to change his looks. But uh, uh, in my opinion, it's not him. And even uh, even to this date, they keep changing him around, and not too many people have seen him. Yeah, that seems pretty on point. One of the big problems of our drug issue, which you another big piece you've been part of, and I was blessed to be able to work with some of this with you, is 
the issues of tunneling and subterranean, which you've continued to develop uh, since we left AWG. Let's talk a little bit first about the issues of cartels and tunneling under the border, kind of the how and how sophisticated these things are getting. Yeah, it's very sophisticated. Uh, they, uh, they, bring, uh, they bring engineers from uh, other countries, uh, a lot of European engineers. I won't say what countries just because I uh, don't want to embarrass anyone. Uh, but uh, uh, so whenever you see a large group of engineers, especially European ones coming into Mexico, you kind of know, uh, okay, what's going on here? Um, they'll build, uh, they build these uh, great machines that uh, lime cutters, they cut through lime like it's, like it's butter. Uh, they're not quiet. They're not, uh, you can definitely hear them. Uh, so think about this. When, uh, when El Chapo built a tunnel under the, the prison. So what people say is, this is the story. El Chapo was captured and taken to jail in order to have a dialogue and uh, come up with an agreement with the government. Uh, if, they had, if it had been anywhere else, obviously somebody would have said, oh, look, El Chapo's meeting with government officials. But now if he's in a prison, they can say he's being, uh, he's being interrogated when really it's, uh, they're doing a handshake deal as to you know, what's going to be allowed. Uh, and then all of a sudden he goes to his, uh, to his cell, uh, camera's in the cell, he goes to the shower, comes back to his room, goes back to the area where the shower is, and he disappears. Uh, and he goes down into a tunnel that has uh, uh, railroad-type tracks and a motorcycle on tracks that he drives off into the blue uh, yonder. Uh, it's not possible. It's not possible for someone to dig uh, with those type of machines and build that type of tunnel under a highly uh, maximum security prison. And you're going to tell me no one ever heard it. Uh, it's it's just, not, just not possible. So uh, everybody knows that that was, uh, that was allowed. It was allowed to happen. It was a way of getting him in there. Uh, and uh, they, they uh, made the deal with the government and he escaped and Months later, uh, uh, he's supposedly captured and uh, extradited to the U.S. So then we get into the cross-border tunneling, which is where we're running people, human trafficking, drugs, that whole piece. And those are some amazingly sophisticated tunnels. How is that happening and no one is knowing? So those are very sophisticated, uh, Sinaloa. We, we uh, in, in the asymmetric warfare group, we would uh, support the CBP, every time they found a tunnel, we'd, we'd go help them. They had a tunnel team and a tunnel task force. We'd assist them. We'd go there. We'd look at the tunnels. We could measure them and see how they were built. So, you know, Sinaloa cartel uh, had more, more sophisticated uh, tunnels than any other cartel. Obviously, they had more money. Um, the, car- the tunnels were always built in highly populated areas, especially industrial areas, where there was a lot of movement, especially from trucks in and out. They'll... they'll uh, Lisa warehouse on the U.S. side, they'll start building the tunnel from the Mexican side, and they'll go all the way up. They'll, they'll, they'll dig from both sides, but uh, because it's a large warehouse, you don't have none of the debris, none of the dirt, none of the that's coming out. Uh, they can take it out later with their trucks, and it just looks like a typical uh, you know, uh, cargo vans, cargo trucks, just going in, departing from a warehouse. So it's, it'll start from one warehouse on the Mexican side or a house, and it'll go all the way through. Some of these tunnels, the last one we found was two miles long and under the, under the river. Uh, and, uh, and it goes straight into a warehouse in the U.S. Uh, the only way that those tunnels have been found is always through human, human uh, intelligence. Somebody always uh, gives them up or tells, them, hey, there's a, there's a warehouse here. Uh, and... There's other methods of detecting them, but uh, human sources are, are, are the best and most reliable. And that's, that's really the way they've been, they've been uh, uh, found. Now, what's funny is <laughs> I've talked to a lot of my friends in the CEP, and they're like, well, we finally uh, got rid of the tunneling problem. I said, what? I said, nah, tunnels, tunnels have not been a problem anymore. Uh, I said, why? Because, well, we have open borders. <laughs> so... So uh, really, uh, the open border problems, uh, the ease which is the cartels are ever to go back and forth. Again, remember, it's about making money. There's no need to spend a lot of money in making, building new tunnels. Uh, obviously, there's still tunnels. They're still there just in case. 
But right now, there's no need to spend money when you can just cross the border openly. And obviously, the intent is to make more money. So uh, we, we, we gave it to them in a silver platter. Yeah, we did. The, the concept of operating deep underground, you, you have a, a tremendous amount of experience in breaching in, in, in understanding how to breach into doorways, into, into uh, contained areas, and then the operation deep underground. Those are technologies I think that people misunderstand as far as the limitations and the actual duration in which we can operate because that's a, a very, it's a complex battle space. It is. Very complex battle space. Uh, great friend of ours, uh, our Major Jose Gordon, as you know very well, he always says he, he compares uh, underground uh, operations uh, as going, going into space without a, without a, uh, a space suit. <laughs> he said, you wouldn't go uh, into space without a space suit. So why would you go underground without the necessary equipment? Uh, it's changed quite a bit from the days of the, of the tunnel rats to the way we operate today. And uh, I will tell you, without the proper gear, without the proper equipment, without the proper knowledge on how to operate in a subterranean uh, environment, uh, we, we would not be effective. Uh, the, the unit has, uh, the special ops community has really led the way uh, when it comes to subterranean operations. Uh, the big army is trying to, to learn as much as they can and is trying to catch up. And uh, some people say, well, why would the big army be, uh, be interested? But I mean, you have to look at the countries that do have underground facilities, especially when you're talking about North Korea and when you're talking about Iran. And uh, uh, there's a lot of targets out there. So uh, whether, whether the, the conventional army be used as a supporting element or even, uh, even uh, if they were used to just uh, uh, surround uh, an area as a perimeter, uh, they need that knowledge and uh, the equipment. And slowly but surely, they're they're, they're getting there. Uh, but it's just we need to we need to learn to operate in every environment. When I say we, I just mean the our military. Uh, regardless if we think uh, we'll be there or not, uh, that has been a problem lately. Uh, after twenty years of desert warfare, uh, we're a little rusty on some of the other environments. Uh, I. I have confidence that they, they will catch up. It's good for old veterans like me because they keep calling us for, for our experience. And, uh, uh, and again, the knowledge that we have from, uh, especially those, those of us that were in, uh, in the military in the, the 70s and 80s, a lot of uh, uh, jungle warfare, a lot of uh, uh, urban war fighting. Uh, so uh, that knowledge, they're, they're really calling a lot of us back to, uh, to really share our experiences. So we can have a better, better training programs. But again, I just go back to uh, our army as a whole, our military as a whole needs to learn to operate in every environment, not only what's uh, what we see in the news at the time. One of the topics we had when you and I discussed many times at AWG was this emerging threat in which we're living in right now, which was the merging of the public-private partnership to use those resources as propaganda against the United States to wage what is now referred to as fifth generation warfare. You've seen a massive evolution in your time of warfare from which was primarily kinetic to where now we're primarily informational. What are your thoughts on that joke? Cause that's a very sophisticated and complex battle space we've, we're now living in. It is. Uh, I mean, years, years ago you wrote a, uh, on one of your podcasts, you had a very, very good article, uh, uh, conversation on, uh, on the fifth, war, uh, fifth generation warfare. Uh, I, with, your, with your permission, I, I kind of wrote uh, your words and tried to really get them into the, the community. Uh, kind of a warning as to what, what we expect to see in the future. Uh, it, it was not well received. Uh, and I know you and I worked on it quite a bit. Uh, I think, uh, again, I'm trying not to offend anyone or uh, put blame on anyone, but I think it was just too controversial at the time. And it was seen as, as us pointing fingers. Uh, but the truth is, 
that uh, more and more uh, information, uh, well, I'll say IO information operations were being used really against our own country, uh, really targeting the newer generation, the younger generation, or what we call, uh, now you can see it was a generation Z. Uh, everything is about me. Everything is about, you know, poor me and uh, how this country is bad, you know. And uh, for some reason, it's just, uh, it, it's like a, like a wildfire just spreading. And we keep feeding it more and more oxygen. Uh, again, you, you really did a great job at describing it. Uh, and, and I'm talking about, was, I'm trying to think uh, the year. It was almost, probably almost 10 years ago. Uh, that you and uh, but we, we it's hard to talk about information operation and how uh, our country is being uh, attacked in that way uh, without really pointing fingers at those who allow it to happen. And uh, again, as you can tell, I'm trying to be sensitive and. <laughs> No, I think it's fair, Joe, and I and I agree with you. And we've talked. I talk about it on the show. The complexity, and it's. I think it's. There's two issues here at play. One is that it's hard to visualize a battle space that's not tangible. I think that's. You and I've talked about that, especially when so many of the, even just within the dog squadron. I mean, we had a great minds there, very heavily tactical driven. So the in the concept of being able to apply a a dynamic space like fifth generation warfare it's a little bit disempowering and I, and I respect that. I don't say that with any finger pointing. It just is like, well, how do you control and how do you fight this? Right, right. We had, uh, I had, I had uh, a lot of help from uh, uh, two individuals, uh, Sir Daryl Perry and uh, Sir Paul Gump. They, they really uh, dove into it with me and we really, really tried to explain first uh, generation warfare and, uh, the consequences we would have if we didn't do any, something about it. The problem with information operations is whoever puts out the information first is viewed as being correct, and anybody else that comes afterwards is being seen as just being on the defense and having to cover up for the truth that was told at the very beginning. So, so that's the thing is when you're, when you're seen as always being on the defense, how, really, how, how do you create a proper offense, you know, uh, when you when you have no clue what's going to come next, you know, and uh, and and that was one of the, the hard parts about it was we were never the first ones in the league. We were never the first ones to put out information. We were never the first ones to put out a thought process. It was we were always responding to something that had already been put out. So we were seen as being on the defense, and obviously you're just you're just trying to protect yourself, and that's the way it was viewed. Absolutely. Let's go back a little bit as we start to wind down, get back to one of the, the bread and butter for you, what's truly in your heart is the development of soldiers. You have dedicated your life to building soldiers on top of your missions with Delta. And as a retired Sergeant Major, you've seen a lot of changes. And with that, there's there's new generations that see the world a little bit differently, but you've also seen some real challenges it's going to get, first of all, into the ethics of what, what you see right now, where you grew up and the ethics that were there and some of the challenges we face now. Roger. Um, uh, Colonel Mahaney, uh, General Wharton, and myself stood up an organization, a nonprofit organization called the National Center for Urban Operations. Uh, we're based out of uh, Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, uh, obviously. Uh, and what we do is uh, in New York City. And uh, what we do is we take soldiers um, into New York and we expose them to the threats and the challenges that they're going to find if we ever operate in a mega city. General Milley years ago uh, from 2013 on has stated that the next large scale combat operation is going to be in a mega city with over 10 million people. So we bring soldiers in and uh, we, we, we expose them to the challenges. And I say expose because there are, there are no answers yet. It is up to this generation of soldiers to build uh, that doctrine and build and, and see what are the, the tactics and what's the right equipment. Obviously, we assist them with our knowledge and what we have, but technology is always changing. So we're also trying to find what's the next technology that can assist. We work together with the fire department, F, F, uh, 
uh, NYPD and the FDNY. Uh, we work together with the police and the fire department. It's their city, and uh, everybody really embraces this. As we bring soldiers in, and we've been doing this now for several years, uh, we have seen a change in, in uh, the thought process. Soldiers are soldiers, and they're very receptive, and they, they always uh, appreciate everything we do for them. But it was a lot easier for me to operate uh, in the 70s and, and 80s in different countries when there were no cell phones and cameras and biometrics and uh, you know cameras everywhere. Uh, so now you, you try to convince these soldiers that, you know, how are you going to conduct these operations? And how are you going to work with these other forces? Because obviously we're not going to conduct large-scale combat operations in the U.S. It'll be uh, as advisors to other forces throughout the world. Some of the things, uh, uh, again, when it comes to moral and ethics, uh, I've seen some changes in personnel. Uh, great soldiers, but some of them, uh, their biggest thing is, you know, if some of these other soldiers are committing atrocities and that we can't control, then I don't want to, I don't want to help them. And I tell them, you're a soldier, you do as you're told. And it doesn't mean that you're helping them commit those atrocities or, or something that you would think is unethical, unethical. You know, I tell them, you know, instead of saying, Hey, you can't do that. How about saying, Hey, can I give you an advice? You know, maybe if you change your tactics from A to B, the people will be more receptive and they will see that, yes, you are trying to help instead of seeing you as the enemy. Um, so it's really, a, it's really, and that's when I talk about street smarts. Uh, you know, have I, been, have I been in that situation? Yes. But you can't tell another commander from another army in another country hey, you're going to listen to me and this is the way you're going to do, this is the way you're going to conduct operations because they'll just tell you to go, go away. They'll get rid of you. <laughs> they'll send you back home. Uh, it's how do you approach people? How do you relate to people? Or how do you uh, convince them of, uh, to do something that may not be what they want to do? Uh, or uh, how do you convince them to do something that may not be a, Immediate impact, but in the long run, is going to be is going to be better. Uh, I uh, and I have some I have some soldiers who tell me uh, I won't go to this country. I want to or I won't go to country A or country B because I don't I don't uh, like the way they treat women. Or I don't like the way they uh, treat a certain uh, a certain culture or, uh, or certain ethnicity. And, and I tell them that's not that's not your decision. Uh, I don't uh, don't want to get into politics, but uh, again, uh, we just need to we just need to realize that the the military for a country. Why do we have a military in this country, and why is it so great and so powerful and so large? It's really to deter uh, uh, to deter war. You know, I always tell people. When I tell people I was in the soft community, first thing they say, ah, so how many people do you kill? And I'm like, you know, for us, it's not about killing. It's about saving lives. You know, why do you ask me how many lives did I save? <laughs> We're always looking at the bad part of, about it. And some of these soldiers now, uh, they just have the mentality that, we're going to go to a country and be the, the saviors and be the police. And we're there for a humanitarian effort. That may be part of a mission. Uh, uh, I always tell people, I think, uh, uh, I know I'm going to mess it up. What, what was that? The Marine commander wrote, the, was it the, the three block war? Uh, where mm -hmm. when you're in a city, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, you may have a commander doing one thing in a, one place. You may be doing humanitarian assistance in another place. You may be doing, Offensive operations and defensive operations are not. Uh, there's very different facets to an operation. But for some reason now, we, we gravitate more toward, uh, you know, humanitarian assistance and being the police of the world. Well, you know what? Sorry, I'm a soldier. I only have one mission and one purpose in my life. And that's, uh, that's if you try to, to invade my, you know, if, if, you, if you are a threat to national security, of my country, my job is to take you out, period. I don't need, I don't need guys that 
want to have picnics and sing Kumbaya. I need guys that want to pick up a rifle and kill the enemy. And as harsh as that may sound, that's what we're all about. I need guys that, I don't need guys to talk about, you know, did I offend somebody or did I hurt your feelings? No. I need people to talk about camaraderie. I need people to talk about brothers in arms. I need to, you know, my soldiers to know that I have their back. It's like, like I said originally, initially, we're all, whenever I talk to a crowd uh, of young soldiers, especially like some from uh, the Academy, West Point, I tell them, I call everybody guys. So don't get offended. We're all guys. We're all green. We're all soldiers. I said, we all bleed. Uh, and we're here to back each other up. I need to know that you have my back and I have yours. And there's nothing else that's going to come in between us. So all this other stuff about, you know, uh, uh, let's face it. All this woke crap is just that crap. And I don't need it in my military. You know, it doesn't need to be in the military. All we need to know is, you know, that we are all brothers in arms. And we love each other. And we're going to back each other up or else we're not coming back home. That's it. Absolutely true. You were talking three block war. That's uh, U.S. Marine General Charles Krulak. Yes. Yes. And and then that's uh, he talked of the military action, peacekeeping operations and humanitarian aid. But he also stressed the strategic corporal, which is something I think that gets us back almost to the power of the U.S. military in its most, I would say, most adaptive phase, which was World War Two. The strategic corporal goes back to just being decentralized. I mean, if 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 I, if I have a, a platoon or a squad in one place and they're operating, then it may be a corporal that's in charge, but he needs to know, you know, what what are what are our goals? What is the strategy? And you know, so it doesn't matter if it's a general or if it's a corporal. You both have missions, and you your job is to accomplish that mission and come out successful. That is why we talk about singleton missions in, in the unit. And that's why General, uh, that's why Scotty Miller was so successful and so great. Uh, he understood that we operate decentralized and we're not always going to have communications back and forth. So we have to trust that I understand the mission and that I know what my goal is, what the goal is, not only my goal and the unit's goal, but the goal of the United States. Uh, you, you asked me about uh, General Boykin, and uh, I always tell people, uh, Joe Boykin called me to his office once for a particular mission, and uh, it happened more than once. And uh, he always said, uh, Joe, here's your marching orders. I said, Give them to me, sir. And he says, Do not embarrass the unit, do not embarrass the U.S. Army, do not embarrass the United States of America. You got that? I said, Right, that, sir. He said, Okay, get out of my office. And uh, that was it. But he trusted me, and he trusted that, you know, I knew what to do. Again, in the absence of adult supervision, I was going to do the right thing because I was, again, he told me, he asked me, don't embarrass the United States, don't embarrass the, the Army, don't embarrass the unit. Well, guess what? I will do everything possible. I will do everything within my power to make sure that that is the reality. I will not embarrass my unit. I will not embarrass my Army. I will not embarrass the United States. And that's all he needed to say. Everything else was understood. Absolutely. We'll just kind of wrap up with this and I want to get your response to this and then we'll close with a prayer. But um, we're going to go back to Hoot, but we're going to start with a quote that came in from Lieutenant Colonel retired Pete Chambers the other day, which his statement was, the highest order of a warrior is love because of who we care about, who's on our, the man on our left and the right. The character of Hoot in, in the film Black Hawk Town, his final words were in that final scene. You're going back in? There's still men out there. God damn. When I go home, people ask me, hey, who? Why do you do it, man? Why? Some kind of war junkie? I won't say a goddamn word. What? They won't understand. They won't understand why we do it. They won't understand it's about the men next to you. 
Started a whole new week. It's Monday. What's your thoughts on that, Joe? So when we when we created the asymmetric warfare group, and you know this well because you were heavily involved with me, uh, people always ask, you know, what what are you looking for? Uh, we were all we we were all older star majors, uh, uh, older enlisted and officers, older officers, because we wanted personnel with experience. Every single one of us had the same goal. And that was that my job now as a retired Sergeant Major is to make sure that the next generation of soldiers survives, to make sure that they're able to go to war and come back alive. That is my goal. That is my goal to make sure that they live. I always tell the students when I talk to them, I said, you know what my goal is? Take what? I said, my goal is to make sure that when you're old and retired, you can go to a bar and lie about your, uh, everything you accomplished and get free drinks. And, you know, they crack up and they laugh. But really, that's my goal. Make sure that they come back home. Why can't, you know, if we have different experiences from a different time that are still relative to what we're doing today, why don't we share our experiences? Why don't we bring these guys back to talk? Uh, I go to West Point probably two or three times a year. Uh, we don't talk about now. They asked about Panama. Why was Panama so successful? Yet we don't talk about it as an urban operation. Very successful. Everything went back to normal within three days. Never lost power, never lost electricity uh, or water. Uh, you know, uh, so it's about talking about those successes that we had in the past that are still relative to missions that we're accomplishing today, but yet it's not in doctrine or it's not written in history somewhere because it was within the South community. And one of the problems is, you know, South community, what do we believe in? Military operations other than war, what we call mutua. Well, military operations, uh, mutua does not go hand in hand with, uh, uh, with doctrine. But I tell people, doctrine is an example of past wars. It doesn't mean that that's the way it's done because no, no situation is ever the same. I told somebody one time, a great philosopher said, there's no person in this world can ever cross a river in the same place twice. I said, well, think about it. And he said, as, as soon as you put your foot in that water, that river flow changes and it's never the same. The terrain changes. Uh, you, you know, you're an older person. Therefore, that same person will never cross twice. You know, and it made a lot of sense when you really think about it. Uh, and that's the way I see it was, was war, you know. No mission, no combat operation, no campaign is ever going to be the same. You know, things change. But what can we learn from the first experience that will be relative to the second one? And that's it. So when I talk to soldiers, I say, use this as an example. It's not doctrine. It's not gospel. It's an example of how I was thinking, how I thought about it. And hopefully it's something that you can get out of it to apply in the future. You know, but obviously with their own twist. It's good. It's good. A lot of challenges ahead. <laughs> Let's do a prayer, Joe. We always do a prayer. Father, I just want to thank you for this blessed time. We've come together and just bringing together a one of America's great, uh, truly a legend in in the communities that he's worked in, and we're blessed to have him here, blessed to, I'm blessed to have him as a friend and brother, and truly blessed for all he's given to this nation. Let's pray for the continued success and the thinkings that Joe brings into this world, the influence to inspire especially the young soldier and the young minds to open their hearts and minds up to a greater world, a place where it's not about self, but about the selflessness of commitment to a greater, a greater goal. We thank him for all he's done. We continue to pray for the blessings of his family. And we say these things in Christ Jesus name. Amen. Amen, brother. And I just want to thank you for, to me, you're, you're my, uh, you're my inspiration. Uh, I look up to you. Uh, you're spreading the word, brother. And that's what we need. Uh, we need to open up the eyes of, of America uh, with the truth. And uh, whether it be, the truth is not always beautiful. 
uh, sometimes is uh, deep down ugly and crushing, but it's because of people like you that were able to open up our minds to different ways of thinking. And uh, maybe with your help, people start thinking about it and say, you know what, this guy's this guy does make sense. Uh, and I thank you for that, brother. Thank you, Joe. It's a deep honor to hear that from you, and I really mean it. And it's been an amazing honor to work with you and continue to work with you over time. We have a, we still have a good fight left ahead of us. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be right there with you, brother, side by side, as we will. Absolutely, absolutely. But Joe, God bless you, man. Thank you for all you do, sincerely, and we'll uh, we'll talk very, very soon. Thank you, brother. God bless. Well, Patriots, that's the end of part two. The interview with Joe Vega. Retired Sergeant Major from Special Operations Forces Delta. A very good friend. But I also want to make mention of a lot of amazing guys that I worked with at Asymmetric Warfare Group. Asymmetric Warfare Group was a special missions unit that was stood up at Fort Meade. It derived its origins from the Counter-IED Task Force, which was set up, I believe it was under General Cody, to send out the best of the best. Joe is the one was one of the plank holders in that that started that to explore ways to save soldiers' lives when the IED threat began to emerge in Iraq and later in Afghanistan. Asymmetric Warfare Group was founded, and Joe was one of the primary founders, if not the primary founder, of Asymmetric Warfare Group following the, the counter-IED task force. And the purpose of Asymmetric Warfare Group, it was formatted on squadrons. Um, I was... When I joined later on, it was Dog Squadron, which this was a, a squadron format, very much like the unit. And the purpose was to continue to identify the threats that would maintain the, the supremacy on the battlefield, but most importantly, save soldiers' lives. That's what we did. So in Dog Squadron, where I worked with Joe, everything that we did was concepts and integration and future threats, always looking what we call over-the-horizon threats. It was an amazing honor, and there's so many great guys that are there. Sadly, as the lesser wisdom took over the military, Asymmetric Warfare Group a couple of years ago was disbanded. The Army felt it was no longer a needed asset. A very unfortunate, in my opinion, very poor decision. We were effectively one of the most most effective in identifying the threats we were like the Army's advanced consulting agency, if you want to look at it like this. Our mission was global. We could travel to any country, and we could travel to any war zone as needed to acquire the information, to learn, and to keep an adaptive format and footing for our soldiers so they would survive. In the current climate of things, it's probably a blessing that Asymmetric Warfare Group was disbanded, but in the greater picture of things, it's a great loss. And so I just want to end this show by making great thanks to all of the people I worked with at Asymmetric Warfare Group, in particular to somebody you heard mentioned here in this show, and his name is Colonel Patrick Mahaney, uh, Special Forces Commander. I, work, I met and worked with under General Scott Miller in Afghanistan, one of the finest colonels I've ever worked with, and truly a credit to his Green Beret and all that he did. Joe and I worked for him, and I worked under Joe. So that's kind of the last few thoughts. So thank you. This has been a nice evening for me and just kind of reflecting with a friend and sharing that time with you. So keep your head up and your eyes forward. Never bow to evil. Never relent. Always press into the fight. God is with us. He'll never forsake us. And in the end, God will always win. But we are here in this time, in this place, for just such a time as this. We're at war. So walk boldly and fearlessly with Christ. Occupy the land. Expand the kingdom. Subdue the enemy. Mission forward. Patriots, I will see you Sunday night for Peace Be Still. Until then or until the next time. God bless. Good night. Thank you. And out for now. Oh, I want to feel something. I just want to breathe again. To the deepest end Oh, I want to feel something Let me get back in my body 
I know 